G'day everyone, this is Greg Ryan and welcome to episode 29 of Rare and Resilient 1 in 5000 podcast and today we are very fortunate to be joined by Dr. Andrea Bischoff from the International Centre for Colorectal and Neurological Care at Children's Hospital Colorado. Welcome Dr. Bischoff. Thank you Greg, I'm so excited to be here. Oh well, we're very fortunate to have someone of your calibre to join us today. Could you just give us a bit of a background on how you got into colorectal surgery? Absolutely. So I don't have anyone, any doctor in my family. So initially, I decided that I wanted to work with kids. And according to my parents, since I was very young, I decided uh, on that. And then during my medical school, I met my professor, Dr. Paulo Tubino from Brazil, from Brasilia, and he inspired me to go into pediatric surgery. I felt that pediatric surgery aligned with my desire to help children and to make a positive impact in their lives. So I decided about pediatric surgery, and when I was finishing my training, my professor also suggested I should go abroad to have some experience, and that's when I came and I met Dr. Pena, and I was fascinated about the population of children with anorectal malformation and the fact that you can follow them throughout life. So that's how I became interested in pediatric colorectal surgery. As we all know, Dr. Pena is the icon of our community. And without him, the PSARP wouldn't have been invented. And he is revered by the worldwide, by patients and the medical community as well. Yes, that's correct. And I have been fortunate to be next to him yes that's you're very fortunate well you and plus you're learning from the best as well that's correct can you give us a bit of a, a talk about the services you offer at the center now yes so here in Colorado I'm just going to give a little bit of the background of how we ended up here so as you all know Dr. Pena described the first operation in 1980. And at that time, he was in Mexico. He was very successful. He started traveling all over the world, teaching doctors how to do the procedure. He thought that the procedure would cure all patients, but he realized that it would take more than that, that the procedure is a small portion of the treatment in the long term is extremely important. So because of the lack of resources, he accepted the invitation to practice in the United States. And that's when he moved to New York. And in New York, it was a great place because he could receive patients from all over the world. But then soon he realized I need more people in this team because 50% of the patients will have a urological problem. Many of the female patients will need to see a gynecologist. 30% of the patients have tetracord and will need neurosurgeon and many other specialties. So he realized he needed to create 
a multidisciplinary center. And at that time in New York, they didn't have the vision or the, they didn't want to invest on that. And that's when he moved to Cincinnati to create this true center of multidisciplinary care. And this was very successful. I joined in Cincinnati in 2007. But then we saw the next problem coming. We started receiving phone calls every week from patients, adult patients now that were in a hospital in need of care and the clinicians were not comfortable treating them. They were not familiar with the conditions. And that's when we realized patients are getting older, which is a very good thing. (laughs) And we now have to act on the next step. So that's when Colorado accepted that vision of working on transition of care. We have a very friendly campus here, uh, of intense relationship with the university hospital. So we moved here with this goal in mind that we would be able to establish an example of a good transition of care for our population. As someone who has lived through the child and adult experience, that is absolute wonderful for our community because we've always felt abandoned once we've left the pediatric care. Because as you say, the uh, adult colorectal surgeons really, they don't know what to do with this because they look at us as a pediatric problem. Exactly. So if we think about certain conditions in medicine, for example, if you think of a pneumonia, that's something that both sides, the pediatrician or the internal medicine doctor, they will be comfortable treating. But when you think about congenital surgical conditions, really there is an arbitrary division and most of the surgical care has traditionally happened with the pediatric surgeon. And now it's when we're seeing the long-term sequela. And because those patients already had so many procedures, sometimes the adult colorectal surgeon that has not trained in that is not familiar. So that's when we have to bridge that gap. And I know myself that we've had members of our adult community go to your centre and you've treated them and it's it's been marvellous for them. And it's actually changed their lives because of being able to get the expert care. Now, we're just going to go through a few topics. Let's start at the beginning. So for parents who are listening to this, what can be done prenatally with ARM patients? Yes. So that's the other area that we have been extremely focused is the prenatal diagnosis. I think for years and years, we keep hearing the same story. Parents are excited. They are going to have a baby. Maybe during the prenatal ultrasound, they found an abnormality, maybe not. And sometimes the abnormality can be a single kidney or a single umbilical artery. But by no means they ever thought that the child was coming with what is known as imperforate anus or anorectal malformation. So the story that we hear over and over is that the baby was born for the first time in their life, they hear about imperforate anus 
depending on where the child was delivered, the baby has to be transferred to another hospital. The father doesn't know if he stays with the mother, if he goes with the baby. The baby has to undergo surgery by a surgeon that they never met. They didn't have time to ask question. And it's a roller coaster of emotions that we can avoid. So when you think about what is truly done prenatally, we don't necessarily have to do much, but in the ideal world, we will be able to diagnose all an erectile malformation, or I would say rectoperineal fistula, the most benign, it's going to be hard to diagnose prenatally, but all the others, they can and they should be diagnosed prenatally. So when I look at the prenatal images and I, I am fascinated and amazed on how good they are, I've always wondered how and why we're not diagnosing more often. So we decided to study and we found out that here in the United States, it is not part of the anatomical screening to look at the anus. Even when they spend a lot of time trying to figure out the gender that it's right there, they just have to put the probe a little lower and they will be able to diagnose. And then if we diagnose, we have time to educate parents about this diagnosis, about what's gonna happen during the first 24 hours of life. They can meet the surgeon and they can actually enjoy the birth of that child because it's such an important moment for that family. That's very interesting because all the literature is that you don't know until the child's born. So what you're saying is you believe that there is a possibility that this can be done at the prenatal screening now. A hundred percent. And I am very hopeful that this will this change is coming and it's going to happen within our lifetime. So we have looked at the anus prenatally with ultrasound and with MRI. And yes, we can see it. And yes, we can diagnose. It's just a matter of changing the law, advocating so we can increase this diagnosis. Oh, that would be such a wonderful thing for all parents if that could happen. Can you now just take us through what happens when the baby is born? Sure. So once the baby is born, during the first 24 hours of life, the obligation of the clinician taking care of that patient is to rule out all the associated malformations. As surgeons, normally we think about operate, not operate, but this should not be the priority. The priority is let's screen the baby and find out all the associated anomalies. Only after that, then we're gonna decide if that baby needs a colostomy, if that baby needs a primary repair without a colostomy or a primary delayed repair without a colostomy. And once we have that information of the good physical exam and we have ruled out all the associated anomalies, then we're gonna sit with the parents and explain to them what does the long-term picture look like. As parents, 
They want to know all the information. They want to know what's going to be the prognosis for bowel control, for urinary control, sexual and reproductive function. And we can tell them very early in life. Right, right. That's wonderful. I know your centre puts a lot of emphasis in the bowel management program. How's it done in Colorado and why do you think it's so important and when should children attend the bowel management week? Wonderful. So we believe that our patients should be out of diapers at the same age when other children without colorectal conditions are out of diapers, either because they have achieved bowel control or because we will keep them artificially clean for stool in the underwear. So in the United States, this happens between three and five years of age. And I would say the deadline is when they enter kindergarten, because in most schools, they will ask children to be out of diapers. And as much as we love to operate and make beautiful reconstructions, I believe there is no value if we don't follow our patients and help them to be clean in the underwear. So every month we dedicate a full week to bowel management. During this week, we normally see patients with anorectal malformations. They may have constipation or fecal incontinence. We see patients with Hirschsprung's disease, also with constipation or fecal incontinence. Patients with spina bifida, the majority of them will have fecal incontinence, and patients with what we call idiopathic constipation. So the first step, if they are not originally our patients, we're going to ask to review all the records and prior images to avoid repetition of studies that have been done already so we can determine what's the prognosis for that child and we can create a management plan. So usually we order a contrast enema so we can see the anatomy of the colon and our program runs from Friday to Friday. So on the first Friday in the morning, they have an education session where they will understand what's gonna happen if they are on animus, how to give an anima. We have our social worker and psychologist also helping on strategies to how to present to the child, to how to talk to the child about bowel management. We also have the nurses giving more detailed information about the administration. Then on Friday afternoon, the families meet with the colorectal surgeon when we're gonna propose the first treatment. They're gonna try that Saturday, Sunday, Monday morning. Then from Monday morning until Friday, they're gonna have an abdominal X-ray every day because that's the only objective way to see what's going on, to see if they are truly cleaning their colon. And in the afternoon, they will on Monday, have an, an appointment in person with our advanced practice providers. And then from Tuesday to Friday, they have telehealth appointments with the colorectal surgeon where we're going to modify the regimen until we find a regimen that works. What does it mean that works? Patient has daily bowel movement and is clean in the underwear. 
Then on that last Friday, we're going to discuss what's the long-term plan if the patient will try laxatives in the future, if the patient has an indication for a Malone procedure, and in the best case scenario, the patient will continue with the same regimen, but we will see this patient once a year. We don't let our patients go. We stay with them forever. That's wonderful. Now, have you ever had to do like a virtual boot camp? People do it from home, uh, x-rays locally or whatever. Do, yeah. do you cater for that as well? Yes. So we are currently doing most of our bowel management through telehealth. Unfortunately, the laws in the United States Currently, they do not allow us to do telehealth in states that we are not licensed. United States is one of the only countries that licenses are per state. So yes, we can do if we have a license in the state where the patient lives, and we have done that. I truly believe that in the future, we're going to be able to offer bowel management by telehealth regardless of where the patient is. And does that apply to international patients as well, or just only for USA residents? In the future, it will be for international patients as well. We are currently working on finding a solution for that, because if you think the effort of the family to travel here when they can do it from the comfort of their home, I think we have to look at the positive side and COVID has taught us we can do so much through telehealth and through conferences. Oh, that's such wonderful news because the reality is that I think that our community seems to think that the bowel management is a American-only situation at the moment because there's not a lot of centres around the world. I think this is half true. There are many centers around the world. One of our missions is to educate as many people as you can, as we can. So luckily, there are many countries that are already offering bowel management, but there is certainly room for more. And here from Colorado, it's in our mission to be able to offer virtual bowel management. And one of the most important things is on social media, your page, Doctors Pena Bischoff, you provide such incredible, important information on a regular basis, not just a clinical perspective, but also information to other countries, etc. And it's, it's such a wonderful page, which I encourage everybody to join. Yes, this is something I'm very passionate. I'm the one running that page and posting every day. And the reason why I started, it's because I feel for us that are fully dedicated to colorectal and only doing that, it's very easy. It's always in our mind. We're always thinking about the patients, the problems, but we have to remember that that's not the reality for every pediatric surgeon. There are many pediatric surgeons that are not fully dedicated. So I feel that the more I share, more patients can be benefited. And the other thing is knowledge is power. And I believe in empowering parents because they are the ones that will question the doctors treating them and asking why I don't have a sacral x-ray. What's my prognosis for bowel control? 
And I think that will also raise the bar and raise the standard of care for everyone. Yeah, I fully support the knowledge is power uh, perspective. And I piggyback off you and uh, share a lot of the information on our page whenever I can. So just if it even helps, gets to one extra person, it helps. Absolutely. And I also believe in the power of support groups. You know that I send a lot of patients on your way because nowadays there's no reason for a patient to feel isolated. There's no excuses for that. They should be able to communicate with each other. And there are certain things that doctors can provide. Yes, but there are certain things that only communication between patients and between parents can provide because you are the one, they are the ones at home dealing with something that maybe we never thought about and someone else has a better solution to offer. Personally, you and Dr. Pena have been so supportive of everything that I've done and with our adult group, especially and anything from the One in 5,000 Foundation. So I can't thank you enough for the support you guys have given me as well. <laughs> you, you deserve it. <laughs> no, that's okay. Now, I'd just like to ask a few questions, like some clinical questions, if that's okay. Of course. These are, these are questions that get brought up on in the support groups. Rectal prolapse seems to be something that parents are not too sure what happens if they see a bit of a prolapse. Yes. So rectal prolapse is more common in patients that have poor prognosis for bowel control. All patients with anorectal malformation, I would say they are at risk for rectal prolapse. My indication to operate on a rectal prolapse is when it's interfering with the patient's quality of life. What does that mean? You see a large amount of red tissue outside. You see a lot of mucus production, a lot of blood, or when the patient is trying to ride a bike, it bothers him or her, or sitting, it bothers him or her. So that's when we would indicate an operation. Now for a minor thing, a thing that you can only see the red tissue if you spread the buttocks, that one I'm gonna recommend to wait and be conservative because of the risk of recurrence. Now, Dr. De La Torre has developed, he's my partner, he has developed a technique for repair of rectal prolapse that we have been amazed and extremely proud of the results. So that's what we are doing nowadays. Yeah, I've shared the the video that Dr. De La Torre has done on that, and it's truly amazing. It's not a, a live operation, but the, the way it's been done, it's incredible the way it, it showed. And the cosmetic result after that procedure is very good. So parents are very pleased with the results. Yeah. So if the parent sees the red part of coming out, just to contact their doctor straight away? I would say yes. Uh, You should always be in contact with your surgeon. And if you have any question, yes, you should definitely ask them. My patients, they all have my cell phone. So I tell them in case of any doubt, in case of any concern, contact me because I would feel better if I can offer some advice and calm your mind and heart. Oh, they're very lucky. Now, 
anal and colonic manometries, what do they do? And at what stage a child to do this test? So we normally don't do colonic manometry. The reason is for us, and I would say for most people, the colonic manometry does not change the management, right? We know if the patient has a slow colon or a fast moving colon, just based on simple abdominal x-ray. And I will offer bowel management for those patients and we have very good results with the bowel management. So I have not felt that the colonic manometry change what I am gonna offer in terms of bowel management. Okay, thank you, that's wonderful. Now, the next one is contrast enemas. Yes, the contrast enemas, we find them very valuable because they show us the anatomy of the colon. So just when we do the contrast enema, I would say roughly we can separate patients in three groups. The group that has a dilated colon that usually reflect a colon that moves very slowly. For patients that are constipated and have bowel control, this dilation gives me an indication of the magnitude of the constipation that I'm dealing with. The second group is the group that has a non-dilated colon, a colon that tends to move very fast. And the third group are the patients with spina bifida that we don't know why, but they don't dilate their colon, but they behave as someone with a dilated colon with a very slow motility. So based on the type of the colon, the treatment that I'm gonna propose will be different. The patient with a large colon will need a high volume and concentrated enema for patients without bowel control or a large dose of laxatives for the patients with bowel control. Now, the patient that has a narrow colon, that patient will need a small volume and non-concentrated enema. So the contrast enema helps us, but we use hydrosoluble material. We do not use barium because barium may impact the patient. They may develop a fecal infection after a barium enema. And is that specific for ARM patients? We prefer uh, hydrosoluble contrast enema in all of our patients because all the patients that see us, they have a problem in the motility, either a motility that it's too fast or too slow. So we prefer hydrosoluble for everyone. Okay, following up on that, what is the difference between constipation in an ARM child compared to constipation in a non-ARM child? That's a very good question, Greg. So let's, let's try to explain. First, you have to think, does this patient have bowel control? Yes or no. So the patient with anorectal malformation, they may have bowel control or not. And if they have anorectal malformation, constipation, and bowel control, they are very similar to a patient with constipation, meaning that they will be treated with laxatives. 
Now, the difference is patients with anorectal malformation, they will be very sensitive to liquid stool or very hard stool. So they need that perfect consistency of the stool. So most of my patients that I'm treating with constipation, bowel control, and anorectal malformation, I'm going to give them the laxatives. We like stimulant laxatives, Senna, but I'm going to also add the fiber to give the bulk, to give the consistency of the stool. Now, patients with just constipation without anorectal malformation, most of my patients do not need fiber. They just need the stimulant laxatives. Now, going back to make it a little more complicated, you can have a patient with anorectal malformation, constipation, and no bowel control. So that patient, I cannot give laxatives. That patient needs enemas. So understanding if the patient has bowel control or not is very important. What does bowel control mean? It means the patient can feel the urge, can hold and make it to the toilet. Not make it to the toilet because he's a faster runner. No, it's because he truly or she truly can hold. Going to the opposite end from constipation, if an IA child has a stomach bug and has diarrhea, we're talking about situations that aren't the normal for what their day-to-day situation yeah, yeah. is. Yes. So a child with anorectal malformation and diarrhea, most likely they will have stool accidents. So my advice is just pull the child from school, wait for the diarrhea episode to resolve, and then you can restart your regular bowel management. Children with anorectal malformation, they are free to get any stomach virus as any other child. So we just have to understand that they are, will be more prone to have stool accidents. And my advice will be to protect them. So that's why we like our patients to work with their school. They have, the school knows about the condition and can make accommodations for them. So send the homework, let them be at home during that period when the diarrhea is happening. Right. When it comes to enemas, can you give us the details about the difference between Castile soap, what it does, and what does glycerin do? Perfect. Those are just two irritants. What are the goals of adding irritants to the enema? Is just to force the bowel to contract. So the glycerin is a little more irritant than the Castile soap. My practice is I always start with liquid glycerin first, but when I need a little extra, that's when I'm going to add the Castile soap. The Castile soap is just a mild hand soap, uh, has no smell, no color. It's based off glycerin too, but it's just a different irritant. And what we're trying to do is make the bowel contract and clean the colon. Now, another topic that gets raised nearly every day is skin care. It's both for the stoma and once the uh, closure has happened and 
the child starting to use anal opening, the skin care can be a massive issue there. Sure. So diaper, we call diaper rash, right? When it happens and it happens from the contact of the stool uh, with the skin. So there are different ways. One, as soon as you close the stoma, some patients, not all patients, but some patients may go through a period of diarrhea when the diaper rash is worse. So aside from barrier creams that we will recommend, we will get an abdominal x-ray to see is this patient having true diarrhea or are they constipating and passing liquid stool around because the treatment will be different. So sometimes what we will offer, it's a small liquid glycerin suppository. We call in the United States as PDLX. We do it twice a day with the goal that they will have a better bowel movement and then stay longer intervals without stooling. Usually, if the patient is in need for better evacuation, that takes care of the diaper rash. With two days, the patients are better. But sometimes they are having true diarrhea and what we have to do is slow down that colon. So one of the famous food that can slow down or constipate is banana. That's one that we can say in some cases, let's try to give a banana to see if we can constipate. Rice is another one. And sometimes we have to use medication that it's the Imodium to slow down. Those things should be done very close to your surgeon. Why? Because sometimes, most commonly, the diarrhea period is just for a short period amount of time, and then they switch to constipation. And we don't want the patient to get fecal impacted. So that's why we have to be monitoring those patients very close. So I have my protocol of when I close the colostomy of when I'm gonna see the patient. So I always see them immediately after discharge, 10 days, one month, three months, six months, one year. So I don't let them go. I stay with them very close. That's great. Now, what about kids and adults in this regard that have mucosa leakage? Mm -hmm. It's a very close subject to my heart. What's your- Just like mucus? Yes. Yes. So that is when sometimes we have to get our gastroenterologist colleagues to evaluate, those are sometimes indications for colonoscopies, because when you're receiving laxatives, you may see some mucus production. When you're doing enemas with irritants, you may see mucus production. And usually by reducing the laxatives or reducing the irritants of your enema, you can decrease the mucus production or sometimes you're having an inflammatory response, that's when the gastroenterologist will have to do a colonoscopy, biopsy, there are some anti-inflammatory enemas that can be trialed for a, few, for a period of time to see if that improves the mucus production. Thank you. Now, another topic that gets raised a lot these days is the Malone. What's your attitude towards a Malone and 
at what stage would you recommend a child goes down that track if the families agree to it? Wonderful. So our recommendation is that amylone procedure, it's an integrated enema procedure, should only be offered if we have a recipe of an enema that works. What I see and almost makes me cry is when a patient comes to me with a secostomy or a malone and the patient is still having accidents. That means that the surgeon did the procedure, billed for the procedure, made the money, but did not improve the patient. And that's unacceptable. You should only offer if the family understands that what we are doing is just, it's a, just a different route for delivery of the solution. The Malone does not make the enema better. It makes it easier for independence, not more effective, not faster. It's not the treatment for the fecal incontinence. The treatment is finding the enema. So my recommendation is once we have an enema that works, once we know that this is the treatment for life and the child is interested in starting doing the enemas on his own or on her own, that's when we should offer the Malone procedure. Now, some patients will also need a Mitrofenov. That's a channel to catheterize the bladder. So ideally, I like my patients to also know what's the long-term plan from the urology perspective, because if they also need a Mitrofenov, we do this under the same anesthesia in a combined procedure. How much importance do you put on the psychological factor when it comes to the Malone versus the rectal enemas? Do you get the psychologist involved? So I don't know if you're talking about having rectal manipulation and if that influences my decision for Malone or continue with rectal enemas. It's more that some parents are just saying that their child will just not allow anything to be done rectally anymore. They just refuse it because of the trauma. That's what, that's where I'm getting at. Sure. As you know, we have a fantastic psychologist in our center. And yes, you do. Dr. Laura Judd Glossy. She's a yes. wonderful psychologist. So she sees every single patient. So it's, uh, as you know, I value tremendously mental health, not only of the patient, the family, the sibling. So as soon as a patient is diagnosed, so if it's prenatally or in the neonatal unit, the psychologist and the social worker, they meet this family and they are going to evaluate them every step of the way. We want to have multiple checkpoints to hopefully have our patients arrive in adult life at better conditions than previous generations. So she is on top of all of our patients. Now, what I see as an option for the Malone, first of all, I always tell my families in a very open way. The reality is 
nobody knows how we all go to the bathroom, right? So once you enter the bathroom and you close the door, they don't know if you're doing an enema, if you're doing an integrate procedure, if you're pooping on your own, if you need help. So this should not be a problem per se. Now, when we are thinking about sleepover, independence, grandparents doing enemas or the nanny helping with the enemas, that's when, yes, we should teach our patients that private parts are private parts. And some people, your parents, people that you trust can have access to that, but not everyone for their own safety. So I think the Malone procedure helps with that. I don't see most of my families, the families that I am in contact with, choosing the Malone because of psychological reason. I think most of them choose it just for the independence portion of it and just for the fact that it makes it easier, the administration of the enema. Oh, that's great. I think it's best that we talk about these things openly when it comes to the psychological parts, because unfortunately, it does get missed along the way in some areas. Yes. Fertility in ARM patients. Would you like to just give us a bit of a rundown on your thoughts on the fertility? Yes, this is another subject that we are currently studying. We are surveying all of our adult patients. We wanna be able to better counsel them the same way that as soon as I meet a patient, I can tell them what's the prognosis for future bowel control. I wanna be able to say what's the prognosis for future fertility and reproduction. So we're currently in the process of surveying, but from what I have observed, most of the male patients don't seem to have problem, most of them. In the highest type of anorectal malformation, some patients may have lack of ejaculation. And because of that, in order to fertilize a partner, they may need assisted reproduction techniques, but they should not have trouble with that. Now on the female population, Rectoperineal fistula, rectovestibular fistula, they seem to have the same fertility and reproduction rate as the population without colorectal conditions. Now, patients with cloacal malformation, especially the ones that need what we call partial vaginal replacement, the ones that needs a piece of colon to replace the vagina, those are the ones that we suspect their fertility rate is decreased. So we have never seen a patient with a partial vaginal replacement that got pregnant naturally. And we have never seen a viable, meaning that the patient got pregnant and deliver a baby term with that specific anatomy. So what we are currently trying to understand is how can we offer these patients fertility counseling sooner than later? And what is the best strategy? Because medicine has evolved, 
We have patients that, for example, have cancer and they have preserved the ovary for future reproduction. So we are currently in the process of studying so we can provide our best recommendation for this population. Thank you for that. That's very important. And I'm sure there'll be a lot of parents who will take a lot of heart out of what you've said. Along those lines, the transition of care program that you offer. Yes. So we are extremely devoted to that because as much as we love our patient and as much as we would like to continue following them forever, we know that we won't live forever. I won't live forever. So we have to prepare and we have to leave the next generation more prepared for that. So even when I'm no longer practicing, I want to make sure that we will have a pathway for our patients. So currently we have here gynecology, colorectal surgeon, urologist working at the university site to receive those patients. We are not 100% there because bowel management continues to be an important portion of the adult life. And it's very hard to find a colorectal surgeon with enough time to be doing bowel management. But I think we have a solution. Uh, this will be training in the United States. We have a profession called Advanced Practitioner Providers, APP or NP, that will be doing bowel management in the other side. So it's a work in progress, but we are very proud of what we have achieved so far. I'm glad it's a work in progress because most of the last century, it hasn't been a work in progress at all. Yes. Well, but you have to think the last century, many patients did not survive, right? We, so there were not many adult patients with congenital colorectal conditions. We joke, Dr. Pena loves to make this joke, that if he was born with any of the common pediatric surgical conditions at his time, he would not be alive because there were no treatment. So it, it's at the same time, it's fascinating how much we have evolved in the treatment of medicine in general. So I think the future is beautiful and it's, uh, I'm very hopeful that it's going to be better and better in terms of care. I consider myself one of the very fortunate ones at my age. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. We chatted earlier about hopefully you'll be able to prenatally diagnose ARM. What do you believe are the advancements that are coming for the care and treatment of ARM patients? Yes. So I think the palpable advancements, the one we will see this generation, is the prenatal diagnosis and the transition of care. That's happening already. And I also believe that the fertility portion is coming very soon. So I think this will be full circle of treating patients and then seeing our own patients delivering the next generation. And I know one common question is, will my child have an erectile malformation? And our general answer is no. 
This is not a condition that normally passes from generation to generation. So I think that's the advancements that we will see happening very soon in the next few years. Now, what we can dream about, and I don't know if I will be able to witness that, is completely control of the motility of the bowel. I think when that happens, wow, that will be a great improvement in the quality of life of our patients. That would be unbelievable. It'd be a godsend to everybody in our community. Can you just give us a rundown of your team that you have working at your centre? Yes. Oh, well, it takes a village, right? It's not a one person. So we have the founder that it's Dr. Pena. He continues to be involved in the mission, in the research, in the philosophy, and in the inspiration. I am currently the director of our centre, my assistant director is Dr. Luis de la Torre, and he has created an operation for Hirschsprung's disease. And I'm sure you will have him in the podcast later. Yes. Then we have Dr. Duncan Wilcox, who is one of the urologists that works with us. There are other urologists. So we have Dr. Kyle Rove, we have Dr. Vimula Konda, but the one that does most of the cases uh, is still Dr. Duncan Wilcox. And now there is Dr. Dan Wood, that it's a transition of care urologist. So he starts seeing patients around 12 years of age. Initially, he sees the patient with us, and then later the patient will transition to be seen at the university. We have a phenomenal gynecologist, Dr. Veronica Alanis. So she sees from babies all the way to adults. So she sees at the children's and at the university hospital. And she's the one that currently coordinates if the patient needs a fertility consultation. We have a strong collaboration with our fetal care center that has maternal fetal medicine specialists, high risk OBGYN in case a patient of ours wants to deliver here. We have collaboration with gastroenterology, mainly Dr. Jaime Belkind for neurogastroenterology. And then we have Dr. Jason Soden who takes care of patients with cloacoextrophy or short gut. We have neurosurgery collaboration. So Dr. Brent O'Neill, who sees all of our patients with possible tethered cord. We have orthopedics when needed, when patients have hemivertebra, when patients have scoliosis. Nephrology is also an important portion. So Dr. Margaret Brock, she follows our patients since prenatally, especially the ones that have abnormal kidneys on prenatal ultrasound. And then our team within the center, we have medical assistant, we have administrative assistant, we have psychology, social workers. So Dr. Laura Judy Glossy, Christina Matkins, research coordinator, database manager, 
our amazing nursing team, our amazing APPs, because it takes a village. So that's a brief uh, mention of our center. I, I don't think I can mention everyone because each patient gets an individualized plan and each patient, based on the study of the records, we decide which specialties this patient needs to see. And that is a prime example of the incredible work of Dr. Pena to start the multidisciplinary centres because when he first started, he was that one person looking after all those. Yes, yes. And it's impossible with the way medicine evolves. If you want to be on top of everything, you need each specialty coordinating care. And we need a team that works well together. And I think that's what we are most proud of what we have here, because we have an amazing team working together for the benefit of the patient. They most certainly do. And I'm happy to announce to the podcast listeners that members of those teams will feature in our upcoming podcast over the next few months. We're going to arrange to talk to them on their individual specialty. Yes, I think, I think that's how people will truly understand all what we can provide here in Colorado. And for me, what's going to be the most exciting is that I will be given the honour of interviewing Dr. Pena as well, which that's going to be so amazing for me personally. <laughs> I'm sure he will enjoy too. Well, Dr. Bischoff, I can't thank you enough for giving us your insights and expertise and over a vast amount of topics that we've addressed it's been so wonderful and i'm sure that families and doctors and clinicians who listen to the podcast will feel very educated after what you've spoke to us about today thank you greg it has been a true honor and pleasure few things can get me as excited as talking to the community that i care the most this is the life that I have chosen and I truly consider an honor when a parent puts their most precious child under my hands. So thank you. No, we thank you. So you look after yourself and uh, I'll see you hopefully during the year if I get over to America. Yes, yes. All right. Bye, Dr. Bischoff. Bye-bye.